Oh yeah. How does that fit in to a cohesive, larger vision? We will always have enough cash yeah. around. Strictly business. Business. It's just business. Hi, finance leaders, and welcome to CFO Year, your new favorite finance podcast. I'm Patrick, and I speak with finance pros with an incredible range of backgrounds and experiences. Today, I'm speaking with Glenn Hopper, a former Navy journalist, filmmaker, and founder. Glenn has spent the past two decades helping startups operate at scale and prepare for fundraising and acquisitions. He's passionate about transforming the role of chief financial officer from historical reporter to forward-looking strategist. Glenn has a master's degree in finance with a graduate certificate in business analytics from Harvard University and a master's degree in business administration from Regis University. Today, he's CFO at Sandline, which provides digital discovery services for legal teams. He's also the author of two books, including Deep Finance, Corporate Finance in the Information Age, which we discussed at length. We also spoke about building data-driven organizations, machine learning, and the exciting era the finance world is stepping into. Today's episode is brought to you by Spendesk, the all-in-one spending solution that puts finance teams in control with 100% visibility into company spend. And by CFO Connect, a global community for finance leaders. Join us at cfoconnect.com and you can email podcast at cfoconnect.com with any questions or feedback. Glenn Hopper, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Patrick. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, and as is customary, we'd um, just love you to begin by introducing yourself to the CFO Connect and CFO Year audience. Sure. I am currently a CFO in the legal technology industry. Um, I've been in this industry a few years. This is my second company. I'm with a, a firm called Sandline Global now, and we do e-discovery services. Um, I've been in the CFO, uh, I've been in the startup space as a CFO for about 20 years now, um, several different companies, um, everything from telecom to retail to internet streaming to now legal technology. And um, I guess uh, in the past year, I've also published a book um, called Deep Finance, and it's uh, about the future role of the CFO. And we're certainly going to explore that and, and talk about it in full. But I think you can probably imagine that I'd really like to start with your kind of life before CFO because you were a, you were a Navy journalist. Yeah, correct. It um, seems like a, a circuitous path to get from uh, journalism to uh, to uh, the CFO role, but it I guess in 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 it, at the time it made perfect sense. In hindsight, looking back, it's, it does seem like maybe a, a strange uh, uh, transformation. Yeah, um, I'm quite certain you are our first guest with a, a Navy medal in marksmanship. <laughs> well, you know, the, the marksmanship uh, certainly comes into play. It's great for collections whenever I have to uh, call clients who are behind on their payments. Um, helps me keep uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> helps me keep troubled employees in line when they know I can take them out at a distance. <laughs> so you display that medal prominently. Right, right. I wear it, you know, <laughs> like a lapel pin. It's... <laughs> Um, how, what was that transition like? What actually made you take the step from a journalist to a CFO or to a finance uh, leader? Yeah, so I guess looking back, um, and I'll try to make this as brief as possible so I don't 
write my memoirs on the air here, but <laughs> looking back at my young life, uh, my initial thoughts were that I wanted to be a fiction writer. And then I, as I got into college, I realized, well, I probably need something to pay the bills um, and, until the fiction writing thing takes off. And um, uh, ended up getting into journalism. And um, then I got married and realized uh, I need to pay more bills than what a, a journalist's salary could pay at the time. So, uh, so I went to business school. And interestingly, when I was in business school, the finance classes, I, I took them and you know, thought, okay, well, this is part of business, but I really want to do marketing. I thought marketing and public relations kind of went with the, uh, um, with the background that I had. But when I got into the business world, um, I found that I quickly, I was a product manager and I was battling with limited resources, trying to get more uh, development time for my uh, product. And I ended up diving into the budget and trying to find ways to make the budget work. And soon I sort of transitioned into being the kind of the budget spokesperson for the marketing group. And that got me in front of uh, several C-suite people in the company when it came time to put budgets together. And I was poached from actually the chief operating officer at a telecom company who wanted me to be the finance representative for his organization because there's that constant battle between business units and finance and, and building the budget. And so I actually started my first true 100% finance role was working for the chief operating officer and basically representing him and trying to get access to financial data that back then was, there were gatekeepers that blocked it and finance didn't want other people getting into their business. And um, you know, so it was an interesting for me to come from a business unit and uh, be outside looking in with finance, but it, it kind of structured how I work with the business units to this day. And um, anyway, long story short, I, was, I did that in telecom for several years, got up to a point where I was managing um, about $170 million budget annually, had been through several M&A deals and um, had an opportunity to go to a much smaller company and I guess basically be a, uh, a big fish in a smaller pond, but it was a CFO title. It was an equity position and um, kind of getting in at the ground floor to, to build something. And since I made that jump, I've been in the startup space and doing uh, uh, finance for the startup world um, ever since. That journey to, to CFO is something we, we speak about a lot. And I think we often land on two pretty classic um, journeys. One through the one is the sort of accountant um, who works their way up through controller, etc., and, and winds up as CFO. And the other is often through a consulting background. We have people who come from the big fours; they've done auditing or or even business broader business consulting, and and um, and wind up as as CFO. I think it's it's really fascinating that you came actually from through marketing, and through that operations and and. I wonder if that then makes gives you a, a sort of as specific or a unique-ish perspective on the challenges that other business units have? I think so. And I think it's, it's made me from my very first CFO role be, think much more strategically. You know, there's historically, there's this idea of the CFO as being the CF no. And just, you know, he, the CFO is the guy who's uh, only looking at the numbers and is their only job is to tell you, you can't do that because it's not in budget or give me the ROI on this. And because I came 
first from business units, from marketing, which if there's any any two types that are, are polar opposites, I would say it's sales and marketing and finance um, are the opposite ends of the spectrum. So coming from marketing, seeing the challenges that they had and what they were working through and trying to you know fill their sales pipeline and meet sales quotas that are in the budget and what they need for that um, to do that. And then to move from marketing into operations, true business units and see um, you know, the impact of if you reduce headcount because the budget looks like it's going to be better. You, I saw more from the front lines what, well, if you have fewer installers, it's going to take you a longer time to uh, install your uh, product and you're going to you know, delay revenue and there's going to be customer satisfaction issues. So it really from the and then coming from that into a, a super small business where you had to be more strategic, it's it's definitely shaped the way I uh, approach the job. Last question on the military. Are there lessons and insights that you still carry with you from that time? Very much so. I, so if I, for people who don't have a military background, this will uh, sound like I'm, uh, I talk about uh, being you know, a drill sergeant, uh, super strict like at, at boot camp, but my management style comes from the military. And it's not what's portrayed in the movies where you see you know, people getting yelled at and doing push-ups and all that. Certainly you do that early on, not in the corporate world, but in the military world. But I guess when in the military, everyone has such specific training and you know when you have someone report to you that they have, based on their rank and, and their what they do, you know they have some basic training and they've shown proficiency to that point. So when you you don't have to describe the fundamentals of their job to them you just have to show them how they fit into your organization so when i hire i'm looking for this base level of skills that i know i can say hey let's do these three things and they know how to do that at a basic level i'm you know i'll have to get them up to speed on uh, our systems and processes that we're using but they they come to it with a, a background and so in my management style, I want to treat everyone. I, I'm the furthest thing from a micromanager. I, I want to go set it and forget it. I've got the person who um, came to me with a certain skill set. I tell them what to do. Uh, I don't tell them how. I give them the vision and um, the why, and that's very much a, a, a military approach. And then the how they they can figure that out on their own. And they come to me if they need. Um, if they need assistance or clearing any hurdles. But the other really big thing with the military is um, promotions make a lot more sense in the military. You put in some time, you take a test, you you know pass the test, you move up a rank. Um, and everyone is thinking about promotions all the time. So if you are a leader, a big part of your leadership is coaching, mentoring, and upskilling to help people move up to that next level. So. That, that approach has stayed with me through my entire career. And I guess the last part of from the military is, in the military, it's very clear. Everyone understands the needs of the organization. They know, you know, there's, there's core values, there's your 11 general orders. Everybody knows the basics of why they're doing what they do. Um, and, and when everybody knows that and they're working towards a common goal, it makes teamwork much easier. So um, I, that's the, the, sort of the culture that I want to drive in my company. Um, and it's, it's very military. Like you, you do a lot of team building, get the mission out to them. And, um, and that all still applies in everything I do. Mm. Oh, it's really interesting. I, I, 
I think you're probably right that the average person like me who hasn't spent time in the military, you don't think of it as an empowering um, organization. You think of it as a rigorous, structured, rules-based thing. But exactly as you explained, when people have their very clear understanding of what their roles and their goals are, that is, in fact, empowering because they can then do those to their best ability. Exactly. And you think about it, and it's there's the military has to keep functioning when you remove people from certain levels. There's a chain of command. Everybody knows their role, and they know where they're going. So if somebody can't do it, you know, everybody knows you're all in the same mission. So it goes, military leadership goes to a lot of the same, your, your basic, you know, Rockefeller principles, and, and there's a lot of crossover into, into business. Okay, I'd like to skip forward now to Sandline, where you are today. What, what's brought you to the company? So, I, in the past, my, my past few roles, I've been, um, at my last company I was brought in, uh, it was also an e-discovery company, I was brought in to uh, get the company ready for sale. They'd been around for about six or eight years, and there was a lot of M&A activity going on in the industry, and the... Uh, investors were ready to get out of this and they basically said come in uh, clean up the back office get everything ready so that we can stand uh, due diligence and quality of earnings and everything that goes through in an acquisition so I worked there for about a year uh, getting sort of the back office and everything in shape then we um, spent about six months uh, putting the company on, on the market and going through the whole sale process and due diligence and everything, got that sold. So I was there about 18 months and I was initially picturing going to a different industry, but the broker that I worked with on that deal said, hey, do you want to go do that again? Um, so he introduced me to another startup e-discovery company and not this, not exactly the same um, they weren't looking to sell, but the company had been bootstrapped and had grown to the point where we are now and is starting to think about, okay, how do we go from this small agency to get ready to scale up and to be in a, a position where we can be the acquirer in, in the M&A that's going on in the industry? So um, I've been there about a year now, and my real focus at Sandline has been professionalization and automation of the back office and sort of wrangling all the data from the different systems and trying to, uh, we're in the middle of an ERP uh, transition right now that's been going on for a few months, um, but trying to get everything professionalized, documented and ready so that when we go to private equity, um, that I almost look at the back office operations and this all this automation as um, internal IP. It's really, if you've got good processes and um, that are better than the industry standard, it's sort of an intellectual property and it, it adds value to your business. So that's really been my focus here at Sandline for the past year. I think a lot of listeners' ears will have um, pricked up or perked up when you mentioned ERP and the fact that it's taken months. Uh, so that was the, the, the impetus for you to, to take on the ERP system was the idea that you will soon be going to venture capital and, and you want to have the back office taken care of? It, it is because I think so many businesses, when they go, they may have a great idea um, and they may, may be decent at executing that idea. But in those early stages of a startup, so often there's not a lot of process in the back. And you, there's all these disparate systems could be 
some uh, you know open source software that you're using for one thing. There could be something you built yourself. Something's managed in somebody has a SQL database on their desktop, you know, and every there's all these disparate systems. So when you get the kind of scrutiny that an investor or a, a strategic acquirer would put on your what's going on in your company, if you don't have this all synced up, you look like even if the client doesn't see it to the investor, you don't look like you've got your your business in order. So it's really, I've found whether you're dealing with investors or banks, um, uh, that you, if you can present clean, cleanly and clearly and answer all the questions from A to Z on your business, on uh, how every, you know, from the front end, from a, a lead and prospect all the way through, uh, bringing the customer online, invoicing, and and ultimate churn. You know, if you've got a handle on that entire system and can speak to why your churn rate is what it is, or why it takes you, you know, however long to perform certain tasks, it shows that you're operationally uh, superior to uh, businesses who don't have that. If you're enjoying this conversation, then you've got to check out CFO Connect, the global community for modern finance leaders, like the ones on this podcast. We host monthly events and workshops, have a private Slack group for CFOs, and a one-on-one member matching program. CFO Connect membership is free, but reserved for experienced finance leaders. So if that's you, head over to cfoconnect.eu and apply to join us. You've written a book, Deep Finance, um, and I, I guess that's essentially the core thesis of the book as well, that adopting technology and, and, and automation, automated processes is really the key to modern finance leadership. Yeah. The book, it's, it's obviously written for a very niche audience. It's, uh, I didn't just take on the role of AI and machine learning in the global marketplace, which would have been, you know, maybe if I were just writing it to try to sell more copies, maybe would have been the approach that made more sense. But the idea with the book is (laughs) I really want it to be a roadmap for finance people who are maybe, you know, they know they need to get on board with this, but their career has been, I'm a finance guy, not a developer. So I don't really even know what my first steps are or how I'd go about transitioning my finance team. And I guess what really drove me to write the book was, and I've only realized this in recent months, um, but the analytics and data science um, and every business intelligence, everything that everybody's talking about right now to us finance people, we've been doing this for years. I mean, we, we may not have been using, R or you know Power BI or whatever the modern tools are that are out there, but we've finance people have been in FP&A. We've been um, using you know linear regression and and doing all of our forecasting. We're uh, you know seasonal seasonalizing and trending information and and trying to make forecasts. So the basic skill set of a data scientist exists in finance. So I, I feel like. Finance right now is in the place where maybe operations was 20 or so years ago when the first PMP uh, came out, the, the project management um, cert, cert, certified people. 
And uh, they, so you'd have these project managers come in and tell operations how to do their job. And operations would say, I've been doing this my whole career. You're going to come in and tell me something different. And I think now you're seeing the same thing with finance people. You have these analytics people and uh, the finance people feel like the analytics people are stepping on their turf. So to me, as the finance role, if you look out there at Spendesk or all these other, there's, there's automation for just about every function in finance, whether it's bank reconciliation, expense management, um, uh, accounts receivable, accounts payable, any anything that we can do in finance, there is an automated off the shelf, you know, cloud based software for it. So as more and more of the finance function becomes automated, how are you as an individual or a team going to add value to the organization? And what I preach in the book and what I've preaching my career is you're going to add value to the organization by helping the organization shift to a data-driven organization, consolidating all this data and using that as part of the strategy for the company. And you dedicate um, a lot of the book or, or parts of the book to AI specifically. I'm really interested to know when we're talking about accounting and finance, does AI mean automation or is there, are we, can we go further than that? So, Great question. And I, I do go pretty deep. I talk about different types of machine learning algorithms, and but it's all very brief. And the idea with that is, let me expose you to this so you know what's out there. But the, the truth is, right now in finance, state of the art for um, what we're doing in automation um, is uh, RPA, robotic process automation. So mm. that's that's not true machine learning in that in RPA, you're training a, a software program to do something, whether it's use OCR to read an invoice and interpret what the sender's name is and address and the amount and the due date of the invoice and all that. That's all, that's training a computer, but you're training it the same way you would train an employee. You would tell them, hey, look mm-hmm. in the top left corner where here's where the sender is and here's where the uh, due date is. And so, um, that's not true machine learning, but it is uh, preparing for that. But there, once you automate, I, I see automation and data collection as joined at the hip because once you have all these systems talking to each other and passing information from one system to, to another, that means information is gathered uh, and correlated from very early in the customer life cycle to the end of the customer life cycle. So you can start collecting this information. And for true machine learning, you need a whole bunch of data. And most companies aren't blessed with as much data as Facebook, Google, Amazon, um, you know, the big, uh, the big data-driven companies. Um, but I do think that more and more of, the, uh, of any industry is moving in that direction. So by spelling out, you know, here's the, the broader field of AI, here's sort of general AI, narrow AI, the machine learning is a subset of that, deep learning is a subset of that, and just understand where it is so that you know as the tools get more uh, accessible to businesses of all sizes and as the data grows that you'll be ready for it. So truthfully right now, long or the, the short answer of all my previous rambling is we're really just doing RPA right now in most cases, but we're on the cusp of about to be able to do a lot more. And I think that it's going to be one of these, I think that it, especially in the small, medium-sized business space, I would look at software providers rather than the company themselves 
to find ways to use because they'll have the aggregated data from all of their customers and, and be able to sort of anonymize that data and use that machine learning or use machine learning to train their computers. So it will be in the background of the systems that we use and we'll all aspire to have enough data um, to use it individually uh, going forward. So what you're really talking about there, I imagine, is well, whichever tool you adopt, whether it's your ERP that you mentioned before or it's Spendesk, that sooner or later those tools will also themselves be able to provide added insights so that you as a business owner who only has this small pocket of data actually can learn from all of the small pockets of data that a Spendesk or an ERP Exactly. And the way, you know, the, the way that I would correlate it to something that we're, we see now every day is if you're in your accounting system, if you're going through encoding expenses and it sees um, that uh, something has come in from Holiday Inn, it knows Holiday Inn is a hotel. And if it comes through from you know, whatever restaurant, it knows that it's meals and entertainment. So that's that's not machine learning always. I mean, it, it could be depending on the, the application, but just being able to, it's it's using machine learning to learn so that it's saving keystrokes for you. Um, and I do see from the software providers being having access to a lot more data and being able to do that more than in, individual companies would. And then I imagine that the most obvious application for that kind of data is, is your forecasts. Absolutely. I and I, that's, yes. So, and I also think that there is potential out there for a tool. I've, I've been thinking about this for years, um, where you can load in historical financials, and you know it's put in your income statement, and uh, that you run it through, and, and based on the industry, maybe it's taking broader information from the overall economy, from the markets where you do business, and and other indicators that you may not have access to. Um, and applying that to your PL and then being able to say, okay, here's your internal factors. And then, you know, when you plug into a machine learning, um, if you've got three years of financials that are broken out by month, you know, that might be enough that you can, or the, the computer could go through and identify trends in each line item on your income statement and your revenue and be able to forecast it. And if they could find correlation to things outside of your business that you're maybe not using and then use that for your forecast, um, I see that as a real opportunity as well. As a, a marketer, uh, the first thing I thought of just then was I might be able to find out, I might be able to show an industry average for how much other people are spending on Google ads and Facebook ads and LinkedIn ads, and then I can go to my CFO and say, hey, you know, your software is telling us <laughs> that the average, the average company is spending two million a year on Facebook, and you've only given us 400,000. Um, how do we fix that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly, and, it, and it's really it. I'm I'm a huge proponent of uh, democratization of data, and I think once you get access to that, we need to get. There's no gatekeepers of the information. So marketing, if if you have a forecast and you've figured all this out, and you have this industry information and can apply it, it doesn't need to be hoarded by the finance group. Put it out to all the other groups because they may find things that, you know, maybe I'm encouraging a sort of citizen data science here with different people in the company. But I think if not, I think that the, my dream sort of finance department is it goes beyond just dashboards. So yeah, you've got the pretty dashboards that show you what your pipeline is and what your 
trends are and, and the various things that you're measuring in a business. But if everyone in the company can use that data behind um, what's in those dashboards and sort of make their own decisions, I, I love that because that not just top-down data-driven organization, but at every level in the company, people making decisions based on data. I think the other one that business leaders everywhere would be desperate for right now would be payroll data. Anonymized, obviously, but you know, what does a financial controller actually cost me today in, in Berlin, for example, versus if I hire them in London or in San Francisco? Exactly. And, you know, and there's, there's, uh, you know, salary.com and there's all the companies out there who have that, but it's very, you know, you, you go in and you just get it. Whereas if you had, um, an API and a partnership with someone like that or with mm -hmm. ADP or some, one of these companies that has all this payroll information and it's all anonymized, I mean, that would help a lot. And it makes, you know, if you're making hiring decisions or you're making budget decisions on a, a key role in your company and you're undershooting the market by $20,000 or, or whatever, then it's, uh, you know, that's why then you have the data to say, this is why we're having a hard time hiring quality people. And, you know, yeah. it goes on and on. Yeah. In the book, you write about the new age CFO. Um, can you define that for us? Yeah, I think <clears throat> the... I feel like the stereotype of the CFO is sort of the, uh, like I said earlier, the CF no, um, the sort of curmudgeonly guy or gal who <clears throat> sits in the uh, uh, in, in the room just staring at, at the numbers, and every time you ask for something, they you know flip through their spreadsheets and say, oh no, uh, you can't do that; it's not in the budget, or you know that are uh, really just focused on. Um, how the company is done, I, you know, providing report cards for the company in the past. And I think there are very few CFOs out there today who still that's all they're doing. The new age CFO to me is a much more uh, strategic focused where I think so. Historically, the CFO would have a whole lot of depth in finance and accounting, but no breadth. They didn't, it didn't matter what the widget was that the company was selling. But today's CFO, the new age CFO, um, has to sacrifice maybe some of the depth in finance and accounting, but get very broad and understand the business. Because the expectation now is that you're not just uh, the uh, person who's providing the report card or the referee, that you are a strategic partner to the team and you're providing insights based on the data that you have. So it's not just financial. You're, everything I talked about with the, the data that's available, you're making correlations between financial performance and other areas of the company, the KPIs. So in my companies, I've always been responsible for KPIs across the company, but it's when you can take that and apply it to financial data, it helps in the, in the forecasts and all that. So really it's just, and it's what I think is going to be expected across all jobs in the organization, but it is having a better handle on data that's out there and being able to turn that data into something useful that can drive the company. Hmm. I think it's obviously incredibly common today for CFOs to not only be across the financial data, but those things like customer churn, um, customer acquisition cost as well, and really being a, a closer partner with the marketing team when it's the, the case of cost of acquisition or the CS team when we're talking about churn. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I had one other question for you about the book, you write that the history of accounting has been shaped by innovations in technology. We've talked a lot about technology right now. Um, I think 
the cliched way of thinking about this is you sort of think about before technology and after technology. But is what is are you you're asserting that there's actually always been technology, it's just been a gradual improvement or increase in that the whole way back? Yeah, so interestingly, the, the, for some this is what a geek I am. The history of accounting is, is sort of fascinating to me. So you go back to um, Mesopotamian times where, you know, that's the first historical record. It, going Dating back to the earliest writings is there is a, a accounting, uh, evidence of accounting, whether it's tracking trades or loans or crops and uh, stuff from that era. And then you get from that up to um, uh, medieval era, the 1300s, where uh, double entry bookkeeping comes around. And then from the 1300s on, I mean, you're talking hundreds of years, and the, the basic underpinnings of accounting don't really change much. But then you get into Industrial Revolution, and you get into, let's say, the 1880s, um, and you have the first adding machines, and soon thereafter you've got uh, the first punch cards. <laughs> And it starts um, starts to shift with as technology evolves. Um, but so think about the adding machine; it helped you compute the numbers, but it didn't have any memory. So you're still keeping paper ledgers. Then the early punch card, you're using um, uh, you know punch card serves as a, as a memory, but it's uh, not remembering a whole lot. So you're still kind of stuck in paper ledgers. And then you get up to the mid 20th century and you've got these big you know mainframe or univac size computers that um i think ge had the first uh computer that was dedicated to accounting it was running payroll through a, a big univac machine and um so everybody's seeing where every not just accounting but all business processes are going and then the 70s something uh, that was the first really big shift. And there were two things that happened in the late 70s. One is um, the first uh, software, accounting software that could be run on P, uh, on PCs. Was, it was called Peachtree, still around. Um, that was invented in 78 or 79. And then in about the same time, VisiCalc, the first spreadsheet software, came out. So that radically changed uh, the finance and accounting world. Um and then, you know, you go from that to the cloud and the cloud-based software, and uh, you start seeing some automation tools. And then as, um, uh, as computing progresses and the rest of the world moves on, we see the faster, cheaper computers and faster and cheaper internet. And, uh, and that gets us up to the advent of mainstream machine learning, which we're just seeing, you know, it's kind of in the nascent stages now. So really... Uh, after not, not not changing much at all for hundreds of years from the 50s through today, the last 70 years, and it's that's really, you know all all technology about the same could be uh, said of just the amazing growth that's happened in, in that time span. It's definitely the first reference to Mesopotamia we've ever had on this podcast. <laughs> so thank you for that. <laughs> I wanted to just quickly ask you, in in your opinion. Um, where do you see the CFO role going in the next five years? I think from my experience, I think we're, everybody's about there. I mean, I, all the, the, my peers that I speak to, regardless of industry, everybody's talking about 
automation and data and um, how we can use that to make the company better. And I guess if I'm staying on on that path, I think it's just it's incremental changes. But I do think one one area that I'm hearing a lot about in the last year that maybe wasn't as important um, as it was before, but I think it's going to shape what CFOs do in the near term is ESG. So um, you're mm. hearing a lot more about environmental, social, and um, governmental regulations. And all. so you're, um, I think that's going to shape the role in the next few years because there's going to be more uh, pressure for uh, uh green workspaces and for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think that's going to change the role um, a little bit. Um, and just because it's it's falling in the wheelhouse of CFOs and it's... Yeah, well, just, to, just to interrupt you there, well, why do you think that is? Because I, I, I'm aware that it's falling in the CFO wheelhouse. Um, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by it. So it goes back to what I... What I was saying about KPIs, where a lot of CFOs are responsible, and their group is responsible for the KPIs for the whole company. So the thinking becomes, and also HR rolls up to um, uh, to the CFO a lot. And so I think because you are seen as the keeper of this data, it's well, well, if it's reporting, finance and accounting can take care of that. And if it's HR, then that rolls up under uh, the finance group as well. And um, I. Yeah, and I think maybe it's because we've shown in recent years what we can do with the data and they're used to us providing it, that there is an expectation that, oh, well, you can just add this easily and move on. Think you have company cash under control? You may have a process to pay people back, but company spending is so much more than expense claims. Spendesk gives you one system to replace your old-fashioned company cards, track online payments easily, and process supplier invoices faster than ever. Whether you're a growing startup or you've been doing this for decades, it's never too late to upgrade. Graduate from basic expenses to spend management today. Try Spendesk. I think one other thing that I've discovered, um, we have a lot of social and environmental initiatives here at Spendesk, and it very quickly comes down to budget. And so that's the other thing. We always are going to have to go to the finance team and, and find out what we can spend on something and what we can allocate to this. And so having someone at the CFO level is so valuable uh, because obviously they hold the keys to the budget. Right, right. Yeah. All right, I want to turn now to our quickfire questions. We use these to end every interview. Um, as I say, every time we call them quickfire, you can take as long as you like. Um, so, the first, what is one finance tool you couldn't live without? And please don't say Excel. <laughs> well, I'm really limited now. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, like I said, I'm a regular listener, so I, I've actually been thinking about this question a while. And I... Um, I'm going to say it's a, and I, whether it's Tableau or Power BI, a data visualization tool, because I think a big part of what we do in finance is not just understanding the numbers, but providing what they mean. And I think if you have a way to visualize the data, then you're, you're two steps further than you would be um, if you're trying to explain some complex thing just by 
rows and rows of, of financial data. So I think that those are really changing the, the availability and ease of use of these tools and what we can do with them for uh, uh, data exploration and data visualization um, are really changing uh, what we do in the finance world. So um, yeah, so Tableau is probably the, the first one. Mm. If there was one part of your day-to-day you could outsource completely and forget about, what would it be? This one, I hope, is temporary, Um, but I have been, I joke that I've felt more like a project manager than a CFO the past few months doing this ERP transition. I am so eager to get this uh, transition to this new platform behind me so that I can start playing around with my new toys. It's just, it's like I've been building this this environment that I want to work in for several months and I'm ready to get across the finish line. So the very timely answer for me in particular is, can I please get the project management off my plate and get back to being a CFO? (laughs) What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Um, Not direct advice, but I'm going to use a quote because I'm sure I overuse this and I've been on several podcasts promoting the book recently and I've probably said it on most podcasts, but I'm going to say it again because it really has shaped my approach to analytics, business intelligence and, and finance. So it's a quote from Clifford Stoll and it is, data is not information, Uh, information is not knowledge, knowledge is not understanding, and understanding is not wisdom. So basically these are, this is from just being flooded with the fire hose of information that's out there and taking it through the steps you need to take it through to be a truly data-driven decision-making company. So that wisdom comes when you can take everything that you've got, you've gotten the information out of it, you've gotten the understanding of what's out there, and then you apply that sort of human element to the data, and that's where true wisdom is. I like that a lot. Just to remind everybody, the name of that book again is Deep Finance. Uh, Check it out. Uh, But we'll make sure we've got links to that um, wherever you're seeing this or, or hearing this episode. Final question. Which other finance leaders do you talk to or learn from regularly? So I've recently uh, signed up with CFO Connect, and I haven't really dived in uh, deeply to that community yet. But I've um, I've been involved a lot in recent years with uh, there's one group called the CFO Leadership Council um, here in the states, and uh, I've been uh, w- working with them and, and meeting a lot of people mm-hmm. from that, both in the local chapter and nationally. Um, and uh, the other is CFO University, which. I stumbled across um, probably Googling some some finance information I needed, and there is really a, a treasure trove of, uh, of information there. And that's really, I see that as actually that's more of a resource than a community. The CFOLC has a community just like CFO Connect does, and that CFO.university is just a, a storehouse of, of uh, great information written by other finance people. Mm. The Leadership Council joined us last year for our CFO Connect Summit in September. Um, and yeah, I, I agree, just fantastic insight. Yeah, we were really happy. Um, we were lucky to have them. Yeah. That's it for this episode. Glenn Hopper, I want to thank you so much for your time, uh, for sharing your wisdom. The book again is Deep Finance. And uh, thanks once more. Thank you. CFO Year is brought to you by CFO Connect, the fastest growing global community for finance leaders. Join us for webinars and workshops, get our expert resources, and be a part of an exclusive Slack group just for CFOs. 
Join the community and exchange ideas with CFOs from the most exciting companies in the world. Just visit cfoconnect.eu.